Well, good morning, everybody. So good to be with you, to worship with you on this beautiful day with that beautiful music. Thank you, Laura, for that amazing solo. Uh, as we start today, I've got two stories I want to share with you. The first is about a man named Cameron. Now, Cameron was a film student in New York City, and he was going home from school, and he was taking the subway, as he did almost every day. So he went down into the subway station, and as he came down the stairs, something in his brain started to go haywire, and he started to have a seizure. And he hit the floor, and he started to seize violently, and he was hitting his head on the hard concrete. And eventually, as he continued to seize, he got towards the edge of the platform, and he fell onto the track. Now, it was rush hour, so there were many people in the station, but they were all frozen. Some of them just looked on with horror, imagining what was about to happen. Because you see, as they looked down the tunnel, they saw the light of the subway train coming towards the station. Now, there were other people who were completely oblivious to what had happened because they were on their phones. They were maybe talking on the phone. Maybe they were looking up sports scores. Others were reading the newspaper. But no one did anything except one man, and his name was Wesley Autry. He's a 50-year-old construction worker. And as he saw Cameron tumble over the edge, he jumped into action. And he leaped off the platform, and he covered Cameron's seizing body with his own, just as the subway train pulled into the station. And as the train came, they had just a few inches to spare. And Wesley saved Cameron's life. It took place maybe five, six years ago. You might have even remembered seeing it on the news because Wesley was celebrated by the mayor of New York, the governor of New York, even the president. He was a big deal all over the country. But when he was interviewed, this is what he had to say. He said, I don't feel like I did something spectacular. I just saw someone who needed help. I did what I felt was right. Aren't you supposed to come to people's rescue? Well, then, not too long after, just a few months, there was another man. His name was Ki Suk Han. He's 58 years old, and he also was taking the subway. And he was down in the station and, for some reason, got in an argument with another man. And the argument escalated, and eventually that man pushed Han onto the track. But something was different this time. There was no one else in the station except one man who was coming down the stairs, and he saw the whole thing. Now, when he saw Han hit the track and struggle to try to get back up, and as he saw the subway train coming down the tunnel with this bright light, what he did was quite different than Wesley. Because what he did is he took out his camera, and he started to take pictures as the train came and crushed Han against the platform. But that's not all. The very next day in the New York Daily News, the front page looked like that. Pushed on the subway track, this man is about to die. Now you can imagine the reaction, the outrage, the frustration, the disappointment of the public. Because it's just an awful thing to comprehend. 
So two stories, in many ways, very similar. And the question is, which one of these two men was a good neighbor? Or maybe more personally, which one of these men is the kind of neighbor that you strive to be? You see, at the end of Luke chapter 10, there's this young lawyer that comes to talk to Jesus. And he's really not that interested in Jesus' opinion at all. What he really wants to do is to increase his own reputation. It says he wants to test Jesus. He wants to showcase how smart he is and how he's arrived. And in the process, he wants to take down Jesus a couple notches. I think you can kind of sense that this lawyer has practiced this conversation again and again. He knows exactly how to open. He knows what Jesus is going to say in response. And he knows how he's going to zing him right after Jesus responds. And it's going to be epic. He's going to be legendary. And everyone is going to be talking about him. And so his opening question is this. He says, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? To us, that might seem like a weird question. But it was a very common question that was asked in rabbinical circles at this time in history. It was a standard question with a very standard response. You would say, well, follow the law. Every one of the commands from the Torah, 613 of them, go and do that. But what Jesus does is not at all what this lawyer is anticipating. He says, well, you're the law expert. You know the Old Testament. What's your answer? What does it say? And the lawyer starts to panic. His face flushes. His heart starts racing because this isn't how the conversation is supposed to go. But any good Jew knew the answer to give back to Jesus at this point. So he blurts out, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you nailed it. It's exactly it. Now go and do those things. And the lawyer is disheartened. Because he knows now he's fallen into the trap that he tried to set. Now the first part of the law, he's got down cold. I mean, he's the law expert. Every day he is a devout follower of God. But he also knows how the second part, the loving your neighbor as yourself part, is where he falls way short. And not only he knows that, the entire crowd knows it. His reputation precedes him. And so he's got to save face. So he tries to turn it back to Jesus. And he says, well, who's my neighbor anyway? I mean, what does that even mean? Be more specific. And isn't it easy for us to often try to do the same thing? We encounter a command that God gives us. We're challenged by some scripture. And instead of going to put it into practice, we we decide to define the terms. We decide to start to debate it, to try to discuss it. We form a discussion group, a small group, and we can talk about it endlessly and never really put it into practice. 
Well, Jesus isn't going to play that game. And what he does instead is amazing. Because it's what he so often did. He tells a story. But not just any story. This is one of the most famous stories that's ever been told. One of the most impactful stories that's ever been told. And so he says there was a Jewish man. He was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho. Now it's 17 miles from Jerusalem to Jericho. And it literally is down because it's a 3,000 foot descent. It's very rocky and windy and there are many different places that robbers and bandits can hide out and wait to jump and attack people. And that's exactly what happened. It says he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him up. They left him half dead beside the road. Now, again, it's a very purposeful word choice there. Half dead. If you looked at him from a distance, you had no idea if this guy was still living or not. He looked awful. Well, by chance, a priest came along. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed on the other side. These two religious leaders just happen to be walking past. Both of them see this hurting man in need of help, and they end up walking right past. Now, Jesus doesn't give us more details on why exactly they don't stop to help him. Maybe they were too busy, they had looked at their calendar for the day, they had appointments to keep, they had a lunch to get to. Maybe they're making a phone call, maybe they've got another place to be. Now it doesn't say it's because they're racist or because they're hateful. Maybe they've just got a lot going on. Now another thing is as religious leaders, they always were worried about becoming unclean. And to come into contact with a dead body would mean you'd be unclean for many days. And there'd be this lengthy process with lots of time and energy to becoming clean again. And they'd have to explain to everybody why they had come into contact with this dead body. And so maybe they just wanted to spare themselves all of that stress. It was going to be a costly sacrifice. And they decided not to make it. But I think what we see is that when God commands us to love others, when God calls us to reach out to other people with love, sometimes we can default to our rituals and traditions as an excuse not to do what God has called us to do. God has a law of love, but so easily we can get in a rut and we can decide, well, I'm just going to continue to do what I'm comfortable with. And I'm not going to go and extend that love to others. Well, Jesus continues the story. He says, then a despised Samaritan. It's an important word there. Despised Samaritan came along. And when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed the wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If the bill runs any higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. 
Now, this part of the story would have shocked everyone. The lawyer, the crowd, even Jesus' disciples would have been shocked by this turn of events. Because you see, the hero of the story is a Samaritan. And that's not how the story is supposed to go. The Samaritans were despised and they were hated and they were the sworn enemies of the Jews for centuries. And we even see remnants of this today in the tension between the Israelites and the Palestinians. The hero of the story is not supposed to be a Samaritan. I mean, they couldn't even relate to them. The hero of the story was supposed to be another everyday Jew. But Jesus is trying to communicate something so much deeper and richer. And so he shocks the crowd And then he asks the lawyer a huge question. He says, all right, now which of these three would you say was the neighbor to the man who was attacked? Which of these three was the neighbor? I mean, the answer is obvious, right? But Jesus has made an amazing and challenging point who is our neighbor it's a question that's been asked for all of history it's a question we still ask today who's my neighbor who exactly is God calling me to love now for the lawyer he has a very specific viewpoint on this because God is the God of Israel and that means his neighbor is other Jewish people Well, not even that. It's a little more defined. It's his neighbor are devout Jews who are practicing their faith. That is who he believes he's called to love. But you see, Jesus expands the category infinitely. And he says God is not just the God of Israel. God is the God of the entire world. And he treats our world with love and grace and then calls us to treat each other in the same way. And so our neighbor is not just some little box that we've created. Instead, we are called to love everyone. But have you noticed how we love to try to define the box? Who's in and who's out? Oftentimes it's, you know, we, we, we put ourselves in. I mean, we don't ever want to put ourselves outside the box. So we're in. And then our friends are in and our family's in and maybe a few other people, but then everybody else is out. Jesus is teaching us that our neighbor is anyone who is in need. And I want you to notice something important in the text. Because Jesus changes the question in an important way. Notice Jesus doesn't ask ask who the Samaritan thinks is his neighbor. Instead, he asks who turned out to be the neighbor. You see, Jesus is saying that our actions show whether we are being neighbors or not. That we should spend a whole lot more time focused on who we are being than on who they are. Are we acting like a neighbor in God's eyes. Well, the lawyer answers in the only way he can. He says, well, the neighbor was the one who showed him mercy. 
Not the guys who walked past, the one who actively showed love and mercy. And in this story, Jesus shows us two distinctly different ways of being God's people. God's people, us, have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. Our sins have been forgiven. We've been showered with God's grace. We've been given new life through what he's done in Jesus. And we get to celebrate that. But there's different ways that people choose to respond. One way that people choose to respond sometimes is to to use that truth, that identity that we have in Christ to make ourselves feel important and significant and set apart and we get to decide who's in and who's out and we create a country club kind of faith. But I think Jesus is giving us a different vision for how to approach our identity in Christ. Instead of just staying interior focused, inward focused, he's challenging us to approach the world differently. That God's grace and God's love is a mandate to extend his love and grace to the entire world. In fact, someone who's truly experienced God's grace and forgiveness, can they ever be content to walk past the rest of the world lying, dying, struggling beside the road? What should our response be to God's grace and love and compassion for us? And why do Christians so oftentimes resemble those two religious leaders who pass the man by rather than the good Samaritan? Well, then Jesus has just one more thing to say. And it's the application for our text. And it's the clear marching orders that he has for each one of us. And he simply says, go and do the same. If you want to know how to live this out in your life, if you want to respond in the right way to God's love and grace, well then go and do the same. So who is your neighbor? Or maybe a better question is who are you called to be a neighbor to? Well, I think what Jesus would say is love the one in front of you in whatever way you can. Love the one in front of you in whatever way you can. Your neighbor isn't just the person or the people living on either side of your house or your apartment or your condominium. No, your neighbor is whoever God happens to put right in front of you on your path. Now, your neighbor might be someone that you've never met before. As far as we know, the the Samaritan and the man who was beaten by the side of the road had never, ever met. And isn't it an amazing display of love when someone shows compassion and grace and love to someone they've never met. I mean, we see this on the news every so often or in the newspaper. Someone who donates a kidney to someone they've never met before. And people celebrate, wow, what an amazing showing of love. 
Now, as I mentioned earlier, the Jews and the Samaritans were sworn enemies. And so you might even find that your neighbor is someone you find really difficult to love. They might be rude. They might be annoying. They might even be repulsive to you. They might have a lifestyle you don't approve of. They might use language you don't appreciate. They might wear clothing you don't approve of. They might have values that you disagree with. They might even be in a position to never pay you back. I think this is an important question for each one of us to think about. Who is the person or the group of people you find the hardest to love? Who is the person or the group of people that you find the hardest to love? I think if we're honest, every one of us has an image or a word that's coming to mind right now. And what we need to do with that is to ask ourselves, how does God view those people? What is God's heart for those people? And then we should be praying to God to help give us his eyes and his heart for those people. To change our mind, to change our attitude so that we can love them better. You know, as our community changes, as there are people living all around us who are different from us, what is the best way that we can impact them? Well, I don't think it's going to come through arguing. And it's not going to come through debating. And it's for sure not going to come through condemning them. But I think we can make a huge difference if we would step out to love and serve them. See, the, the Samaritan is described as being moved with compassion. Such a great phrase. When's the last time you were moved with compassion? I think that kind of compassion only comes when we allow God to work on our hearts, when we understand the lengths that he's gone for us, even while we were sinners, that he sent Jesus to die on the cross and to rise again before we could ever take a step towards him. And when we internalize and experience his love, then we can't help but share that love with others. Now, from this story, I think we also see that to be a neighbor takes effort. It takes action. It's not just talk. I mean, sometimes we say all the right things. Yeah, I care about those people, and, you know, I, my heart breaks for them, but I don't even know what I can do, and I really can't make that much of a difference on my own. And to that, Jesus reminds us, love the one in front of you. Do for one person what you wish you could do for all people. To be a neighbor means being willing to take action. It means being willing to get your hands dirty. It even means making sacrifices. I mean, we all live crazy, busy lives. And one of the most valuable assets we all have is our time. And to be a neighbor might mean sacrificing some of your time. There was an experiment done at Princeton University a number of years ago. 
in their theology school. They had a classroom full of theology students and they asked them to do an exercise. They were all supposed to prepare a five minute talk. Now half of the students were told they could prepare their talk on any biblical principle, it didn't matter. The other half was supposed to prepare a five minute talk on our text for today, on the story of the Good Samaritan. Then they divided them right across the board, regardless of which assignment they got, and half of the students were told they were gonna have to hurry to get to another building in order to share their presentation. The other half was told, you've got you know, 15, 20 minutes, you can take your time, you can stop and get some water, but they didn't have to be in such a hurry. And so each student was released one by one, and as they left the building they started in, and they walked down the sidewalk, there was an actor who was paid to be lying in the sidewalk. And he looked awful, and he was struggling and he was dirty, and he was stinky. And they wanted to see how many of these theology students would stop to help this man. And they figured, you know, the ones who had spent a half an hour preparing a talk on the Good Samaritan story, for sure, would have to stop and help this man, right? But that's not true. Because what they found is the only determining factor was which group they were in in regards to whether they had to hurry or not. Out of that whole group of students that was told they needed to hurry to the other building, less than 10% of them stopped to help the man. The Samaritan, Jesus said, gave two silver coins. That was enough to care for this hurting man for up to two months. It's a lot of money. And he even offered to come back and to take care of any other bills that might be accrued. You see, being a neighbor for the Samaritan meant giving up both time and money, making a big sacrifice. Who is God calling you to sacrifice for today? Who would benefit the most from a gift of your time or your resources or your energy Maybe it's someone who's homeless or someone who's terminally ill, someone who's handicapped, someone who's lonely, someone who's left out, someone who's an outcast, someone who's lost. Who are the people that you tend to walk past and not even notice that they're there? Keep your eyes open. Pay attention to people. Share God's love. You know, sometimes one of the most impactful things we can do is just to smile at someone or to share a kind word with someone. But the thing is, church, throughout Scripture, the love of God and the love of others is inseparable. In fact, numerous times in Scripture, our love of God is seriously called into question if we aren't extending God's love to others who were created in his image. But that's the problem, isn't it? Every one of us knows we fall short of that every single day. We might set out to do the right thing, but every one of us ends up focusing more on ourselves than on others. But the good news for us today 
is that God extends his love to us first through Jesus Christ. And regardless of our sin and our selfishness, he sent Jesus to die for your sins and mine. And he offers us grace and mercy. And he comes into our heart to transform us from the inside out. And it's because of his action and his love and the presence of the Holy Spirit that we then can share his love with others. Every day we have a fresh start and a new opportunity to let God's love impact us in a fresh way and then to let it overflow into every encounter we have. Church, today my invitation to you is to simply soak up God's love. Let his love overwhelm you and don't keep it to yourself. But instead, find ways to share it, starting with the people that God puts right in front of you. In closing, I want to share a story. And instead of getting wrapped up in all the political implications of this, I want you to just appreciate it for what it is. It's a story that I read in a book called Jesus, the Middle Eastern Storyteller. It's by a wonderful professor named Gary Burge, who's a professor of New Testament at Wheaton College. He shares a story about a theology professor that he met in Jerusalem. And this professor was fluent in Arabic, so he had access to the Arabic Christian community. And over the course of numerous conversations, he heard this very moving and challenging story. He said, not long ago in Jerusalem's famed Hadassah Hospital, an Israeli soldier lay dying. He had contracted AIDS as a result of his gay lifestyle and was now in the last stages of the disease's terrible course. The thing is, his father was a very famous rabbi in Jerusalem, and both his father and the rest of his family had disowned him completely. So he was condemned to die in his shame alone. Now, the nursing staff on his floor knew the story and carefully avoided his room. Everyone was simply waiting for his life to expire. The soldier happened to be a part of a regiment that had patrolled the occupied West Bank, and his unit was known for its ferocity and its war-fighting skills. The Palestinians living in occupation absolutely hated these troops because sometimes they were perceived as being merciless and even cruel. And it was the green berets that they wore that would give them away. One evening, the soldier went into cardiac arrest, and all the usual hospital alarms went off, but the nursing staff did not respond. Even the doctors just looked the other way. Yet on the floor was another man at work, a Christian janitor, who knew this story very well and knew the meaning of all these emergency warnings. Incredibly, he was also a man whose village had been attacked by this exact soldier's unit. Now, when this Palestinian Christian heard the alarm and witnessed the neglect, his heart was moved with compassion. So he dropped his broom. He entered the soldier's room, and he attempted to resuscitate the man by giving him CPR. The scene was amazing. A poor Palestinian man, a victim of this soldier's violence, now tried to save his enemy while those who have, 
who should have been doing this, stood by on the sidelines. Now to any story like this, and there are thousands, I think Jesus would have one thing to say to us. He would simply say to you and to me, now go and do the same. Let's pray.